our scripture reading today. Uh, we're toward the beginning of our series. It's going to be a long one. We're going to dwell in the Sermon on the Mount for several months. Uh, and we are at the first beatitude this week. And uh, today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So, um, beatitudes. That word beatitude comes from a Latin word, beatus, which means blessed. It means happy. It's also the Latin root for our word, beautiful. Happy, blessed, beautiful people, Jesus says, are those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The best summary I can come up with is to be, f- to be poor in spirit is to be less full of yourself. Less full of yourself. So Lauren Slater is a psychologist, and uh, she wrote a piece a while ago in the New York Times called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And she said this, studies in self-esteem released in the United States in particular, all have the same central message. People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. Feeling bad about yourself is not the cause of our country's biggest problems. Jean Twenge uh, wrote similar things as she was uh, sort of critiquing uh, an all-affirming, never, uh, never critiquing parenting philosophy. Self-esteem-based parenting is, is, is what you could call it. And, and, and it's in her book uh, called The Narcissism Epidemic. And, 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 and she says this, when parents exclaim, great job every time a, ch- a child ties their shoes, when a parent gives stickers for a good try, a good try being a euphemism for failure. When parents give a sticker for a good try every time and not let a child sit in failure and loss, when a child receives a trophy every time he or she comes in eighth place, when a child receives zero negative feedback ever, what Twenge says is that the result is this. The child does not feel any better about themselves, but they do feel superior and more important than everybody else around them, and that's not a good thing. So, um, some of you, I've shared, you know, privately about this this, uh, episode I had once in New York City. I was between appointments. I just met with somebody on the 26th floor of a building, and I I I needed to get across town, and I didn't have any time. And so, I get on the 26th floor goes down to the 25th and it stops and on comes a, 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 a mother with her, her three, four-year-old daughter. And, and, and as the elevator closes, um, the daughter pushed every single button in the elevator. Uh, and so we stopped at every floor. And as the daughter was, and I was extremely late to my meeting, and, and, and as the, the daughter was pushing every button, the mother looked at me and said, isn't she cute? And, and I'm thinking to myself, no, <laughs> she's not cute. She's entitled. She's, she's the problem with the world, your little three-year-old. But these articles and books and elevator experience, 
elevator experiences demonstrate that what society and what children even need is less self-esteem and more poverty of spirit. So just to be clear about what I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about what self-esteem is, at least in the context of, of what I'm saying, and then a portrait of the poor in spirit. So first, a portrait of self-esteem. So, so these Beatitudes are sound bites, which means typically I'll also be meandering to other places in the Bible to, to help explain them. And the, the, the place in the Bible that made the most sense is Jesus's parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector in Luke chapter 18. And the Pharisee is the portrait of, of the man who is after self-esteem. And it says that he prays a prayer, but it's interesting because it says that he prays the prayer to himself. It's as if he's giving himself a pep talk. He mentions God one time, he, and he, he mentions himself five times in this prayer. And he says, thank you, my God, that I'm better than everybody. Thank you that I'm superior. Thank you that I am not like the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers and the tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And, and that statement, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get, that was very significant because 10% for a Pharisee who tithed not only, who gave a tenth not only of what, what, what he received as income, but also of what he of what he bought, and, 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 and you know, get, they were tithing on all sorts of things. And if you do the math, the best guess is that the average Pharisee gave away 20% of their income and not 10. And he says, I fast twice a week when fasting was only required once a year by the law of God uh, at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, one time a year. And yet here he is going without food and oftentimes without water even twice a week. And, 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 and it's all as a prayer to himself. It's his self-esteem building strategy, you know, through religious, you know, excellence, through religious performance, through religious superiority. And so when Jesus in, introduces the parable, it says that, that, that he introduces this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Modern day example, we're in Music City, so... Um, Let's talk about Kanye West. Here's a, here's a quote from Kanye West. It's public, so, so I don't feel like I'm throwing him under the bus. Ask yourself, well, uh, don't ask yourself anything. Just listen. I'm going down as a legend, whether you like me or not. The Bible had 20, 30, 40, 50 characters in it. Don't you think that I would be one of the characters of today's modern Bible? My greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. I am the number one human being in music that makes any person that's living or breathing number two. I am the number one impactful artist of our generation. I am Shakespeare in the flesh. So we listen. I'm listening to your awkwardness. I was actually expecting a little more laughter, a little bit more. But like, you guys are all like, oh. But here's a question. Why is, why is this kind of talk so off-putting? Why is the Pharisee talk so off-putting? Is it because Kanye West is so different than us, or, or is it because Kanye West is so like us? You, know, you don't have to be a religious Pharisee. You don't have to be a you know, Grammy-winning songwriter or artist to hang your heart on a boast. And that's what both the Pharisee and Kanye West are doing in their statements. 
They're hanging their hearts on a boast, a boast that has become their self-esteem strategy. And all we need to do is ask ourselves, what are my at least eyes? You know, maybe I'll I'll never be a Grammy award-winning artist, but at least I'm pretty. Or maybe I'll never be pretty, but at least I have a good sense of humor. Or maybe I'm not funny, but at least I'm in charge. Or I'm not in charge, but at least I have friends. Or I don't have friends, but at least I'm famous. Or I'm not famous, but at least I have a stable marriage and well-behaved kids. Or I don't have a stable marriage and I don't have well-behaved kids, but at least I was the valedictorian. These are all prayers to ourselves. We usually don't speak them. We usually don't verbalize them because we don't want people to disrespect us. But these at least eyes, whatever they are, and that they're all there in all of our hearts, they are our self-esteem strategies. They are our prayers to ourselves to tell ourselves that we're okay. But here's what Jesus is after when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying that the beginning of blessedness is not the realization that we are okay, but the realization that we are not okay. The beginning of blessedness is not becoming convinced that we are superior, but recognizing that we are just like everybody else. The beginning of blessedness is realizing that we are not strong and capable, but we are frail and incapable. So Patty and I um, got introduced, uh, I guess a year and a half or so ago, to a local Nashville friend now uh, named Annie Downs. Some of you know who Annie is. Um, Where are you, Todd Smith? You were up. Todd was up there. Todd left. Um, So Todd knows Annie. A few others of you know Annie. So we were, Patty and I were having a conversation with Annie. She's a writer and a speaker and such, and just a really fun human being. Uh, And, um, you know, we were talking about New Year's resolutions. I'm not sure how we got onto the subject, but but, but in the course of the conversation, Annie said, I stopped doing New Year's resolutions many, many years ago, and instead what I do now is New Year's experiments. Did you catch that nuance? New Year's experiments. That, that way, it's not a resolution. It's not a commitment. It's, it's just, I'm going to give this a try, and I'm not going to put a whole lot of pressure on myself. But in, in some ways, that's an admission that we're not as strong as we think we are, that our willpower is not as great as we anticipate that it would be. So the beginning of blessedness, Jesus is saying, is not to suppress your doubts about yourself, but to start listening to your doubts about yourself. The most important thing that we can take away from the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm giving away the secret at the very beginning, I'm giving away the punchline right now at the very beginning, The most important takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount is not a call to action. It's a call to a broken and contrite heart that the Lord will not despise. If you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. We cannot keep this sermon. We cannot obey it. If you have so much as been angry with somebody in your heart, you've already murdered them. If you have so much as lusted after somebody in your heart, you have already committed adultery. If you don't keep every single promise that you've ever made, you're a liar. 
If you spin and obfuscate rather than telling the plain truth, you're a liar. Love your enemy, not just your friends. Love people who aren't like you, not just people who are. Give generously, but don't tell anybody about it. Don't let anybody know. Let it be a secret between you and God. Don't ever be anxious about anything. I mean, that's, that's where I get slain. You know, I, 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 maybe this is, is still like post-traumatic stress from having been a church planter a couple of times, but I always believe every Sunday morning I'm going to show up to an empty sanctuary. I'm always shocked to see you here. I'm always just a little bit afraid that you're going to find out that I don't live up to all of my preaching. In fact, I don't live up to most of it. In fact, I don't live up to any of it. I'm a little bit afraid of you finding that out and becoming disappointed in me. I'm afraid of that dreadful moment that, that maybe all public people fear, of, of, of the wrong five words slipping out of my mouth, or maybe it's the right five words, but they're misunderstood and misinterpreted, and it will, it will become the end of my ministry. I live in constant anxiety and stuff like that. I felt so known about two or three months ago when Richie Sessions was preaching, and he, he says, did any of you guys wake up with this knot in your stomach at the beginning of every day feeling like the sky's about to fall? I'm like, yeah, that's me. That's me. Much afraid. But here's what the Sermon on the Mount is telling us. The whole pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, looking at the Sermon on the Mount as aspirational, as something to aspire to? Do you realize, you know, when we go into this with, with the resolution mindset and with the I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps mentality, you realize you don't have any boots? You don't own boots? You can't even walk? Without somebody else coming in and putting the boots on and holding them up for you. Don't suppress your doubts about yourself. Start listening to them. Don't believe in yourself, Jesus is saying. Be poor in spirit. Don't believe in yourself. Don't pray prayers to yourself. Well, at least I. Don't believe that you have what it takes to manage your anger, your jealousy, your selfishness, your fear. Don't believe that you have what it takes to manage your critical spirit, your addiction to alcohol, to food, your addiction to money, to retail therapy, your addiction to your reputation, your addiction to being right. Don't think that you have control over that. Don't think that you have what it takes to manage that stuff because you don't. Martin Lloyd-Jones who is one of my main go-tos for this study, wrote this massive volume on the Sermon on the Mount. And he said this, the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain which you are told you must ascend is that you cannot do it, that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. It's another way of saying, don't think that you have problems. You are the problem. You're your worst nightmare. You're your biggest enemy. You are your biggest problem, Jesus is saying. You know, there are a lot of people in our church that have, that have been through recovery, 12 steps and such. And, you know, if you've been through the 12 steps, 
You know, maybe you, you own your own copy of the Alco- Alcoholics Anonymous big book. You, you'll remember that step number one is admitting that you are powerless over your problems. Step number one, you don't get anywhere until you get past that first step. You are powerless over your own problems. Whether you're addicted to a substance or whether you're addicted to your own righteousness and your own religion. You know, Martin Luther on his deathbed, you know, founder of the Protestant Reformation, successful man of God if there ever was one, his last words on his own deathbed, we are all beggars. This is true. How could this possibly be encouraging? Really glad you asked that. So Jack Miller, I love what Jack Miller said, cheer up because you are worse than you think you are. And God's love is infinitely greater than you ever dared to hope for you. So that's the portrait of self-esteem. It's, it's a goose chase without a goose. It's, it's a house of cards. It's going to collapse as soon as the wind blows. The portrait of the poor in spirit, you know, going back to Jesus's parable, is the tax collector who, in contrast to the Pharisee, it says he stands far off from the altar. It says that he won't even lift his eyes toward heaven. There's no entitlement whatsoever. He recognizes his unworthiness before God, and it says that he beats his breast, which, is, which was the, the external way of, of expressing brokenness and contrition in the heart. And then he prays, God, have mercy on me. And I don't know what your English translation says, but the, the original Greek includes the definite article. It says the sinner, not a sinner, but the sinner. You've got this arrogant sort of Kanye West prayer statement being made just 10 feet away, and he doesn't criticize it at all. He's not even aware of, of, of the ugliness and darkness outside of himself and the man 10 feet away from him because he's so caught up in the gap, in the chasm between the holiness and grandeur and beauty of God and the sinfulness and brokenness and unbeauty of fallen human nature. But here's the beauty of this. You know, when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's an invitation not to start trying harder, not to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's, it's an invitation to rest, if you can imagine that. It is a declaration that the gospel is not and has never been intended to be self-help. The gospel is surrender to this. God helps those who cannot help themselves and who know it. That's what the gospel is. And so with this lowliness actually becomes confidence, if, if you could imagine that. It's a different kind of esteem. It's, a, it's an esteem that comes not from within ourselves, but, but from the outside of ourselves. And, and it works this way. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a great picture of, 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 of sort of the descent into poverty of, of, of spirit uh, in the story of the Apostle Paul. Right? This is a guy with an Ivy League education, 
uh, equivalent. He's, he's, you know, he didn't go to Harvard. Harvard didn't exist, but he went to something equivalent, right? So, so you know, he's educated in the classics, educated in Judaism. You know, he's, the, 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 he's far beyond his religious sort of peers at the time as, as an ascending rabbi. And then he gets converted to Christianity through this blinding experience that he has um, with, with, uh, with Jesus, this encounter he has with Jesus. And then he takes 13, 14 years to sit at the feet of the apostles and learn about Christianity, to learn about the nature of grace. And then he becomes Paul the Apostle. And he starts planting churches, he goes on his missionary journeys, and he, he, you know, he, he experiences all of these amazing things, healings and, and you know, demons being cast out and churches being born and, 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 and you know, godless and, and, and spiritually bereft communities and cities. And then he starts writing letters to these churches that he's involved, you know, been involved with planting. And his, his initial early on self-reference is Paul, an apostle to the church and so on. Later, it's Paul, the least of the apostles. Later, it's Paul, the least of all Christians, the least of saints. And then at the end, sort of his mentor letter to his young protege, protege, Timothy, says, here's a trustworthy saying, deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's at the end of his life. We're talking about the apostle Paul, for goodness sake. This is the most influential human being in the history of the world, second only to Jesus Christ. Major gravitas, unflappable confidence, a decorated resume, and yet at the end of his life, he does not say, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Paul is probably more godly at this season of his life than he's ever been. And, and yet his awareness of the gap between who he is and who he should be is so enormous that, 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 that he recognizes himself in this way. And yet, if you, if you go on in that text and you continue to read what Paul writes to Timothy, you see that there is zero self-loathing. You would think that, you know, this guy, he's, he's got no self-esteem. Like, he, he's, he is one of the most positive about his life and his place in the universe, people that you'll ever meet and ever read about. Because right after his chief of sinners statements, he, statement, he bursts into doxology, he bursts into worship, and he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be glory and majesty and honor and power forever and ever and ever. Amen. Why? Because this God is so merciful, he says, that, that, that when I was, was the perpetrator of a holocaust a literal holocaust against the people of Jesus, no less. That is the time at which he rescued me. Then. And so if his mercy is big enough to reach somebody like me, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man he describes himself as, then God's mercy can reach anybody. And, and then he just bursts into worship. So here we see this interplay. Here, here, here we see what it means. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Because you, you've got Paul marinating in the gospel that has, on the one hand, humbled him completely into the dust, and, and at the same time made him feel like a million bucks. Or if you apply inflation, five million bucks. A million bucks isn't what it used to be. 
But you get the point. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is actually the end of the struggle for self-esteem. Because you don't need it. Because of what, what Luther and the Reformers referred to as passive or alien righteousness. It means that you are declared righteous, blameless, beatitudinous, beautiful in the sight of God, not because of anything righteous that you have thought, said, or done, but strictly and solely and exclusively because of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, who on the cross used a, bank, used a banking term to tell, to tell us thy. Somebody approached the, the Lord's table. We do this every week, by the way. The, the, the Lord's Supper is very important to us as a church, so we, we celebrate it every single week. So, so this morning during the, the early service, somebody came up. I, I was at this table, and, and somebody came to the table and said, does this cost anything? And the answer is, you better believe it costs a whole heck of a lot but it doesn't cost you anything. You come without cost because of the price paid for another. On the cross, Jesus said, to tell us die. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a banking term that means paid in full, debt forgiven, done. You're clean. You're clean. And that can't be relinquished from you. But it gets better than that because the well-done, good and faithful servant that the Father in heaven pronounced on Jesus at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well-pleased, if we're in Christ through faith, if we're in Him, that benediction, that blessing, that verdict, that life-giving positive verdict is, is, is said directly toward us as if we had ourselves lived the life that Jesus did. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, to take the hit, to take the fall, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We get the blessing and the beauty and the credit and the praise and the affirmation and the esteem of heaven that Jesus accomplished for us. Why would we need prayers like, thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men? Why would we want to run to our at least eyes when we've got that? You know, a resource that tells us that the moment we declare spiritual bankruptcy, we become heirs of the king's fortune. This is the emotional resource for an unflappable esteem about your place in the universe. Who needs something as small as self to be the, the provider of our esteem? And we've got this. This is so important. You know, Paul again, right? He's, 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 being, he's giving a self-disclosure in Romans chapter 7 about his coveting, about his grief over his own brokenness and, 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 and sinfulness. And, and he says, wretched man that I am. And, and we're like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. It's, it's, it's going to damage your self-esteem. And, and he says, no, no, no. It's okay because Romans 7 is followed by Romans 8. Romans 8 is the answer to Romans 7. Romans 8 that starts with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 that ends with, there is nothing in all creation that will ever, 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 ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's like Sally Lloyd-Jones writes in, you know, the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, you know, best Christmas gift you could get for, 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 you know, for an adult, let alone for a kid. His never stopping, never ending, never failing love. You know, Isaiah 6 
You know, Isaiah sees himself as a wreck when he, when he, get, when he gets a, a glimpse at, at the nature and character and holiness and beauty, beauty of God. A wreck. And, 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 and God sends an angel and says, do not fear. Do not fear. Your, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The gospel's right there. And then what does Isaiah do? He volunteers for a miserable pastor job <laughs> to a church that won't show up. And when it does, they hurl spears at him and, and, and insults at him and saw him into the most high-maintenance parishioners that you could possibly imagine. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. With this grace, I'll do anything for you, God. You know, like, like, like Kathy Keller, you know, says, you know, I'll, I'll, go to, I'll, I'll go live in a box in Calcutta for Jesus if the gospel is true. You know, our lives are not our own. But how beautiful Isaiah grows in his own awareness of, of his own benediction from God. When we read in Isaiah 62, you know, as the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices over you. That's the same Isaiah. You see, and like Isaiah, unlike the Apostle Paul, when we know we're esteemed by God in this way, his wish becomes our command. And then in this weird sort of way, the the Sermon on the Mount becomes descriptive of our lives more and more, even though it's the impossible standard to reach. It's crazy. I'll give Brennan Manning the last word, second to last word. The kingdom of God belongs to people who are not trying to look good or to impress anybody, even themselves. They're not plotting how they can call attention to themselves, worrying about how their actions will be interpreted, or wondering if they will get gold stars for their behavior. The child of God doesn't have to struggle to get himself in a good position. He doesn't have to craft ingenious ways of explaining his position to Jesus. He doesn't have to create a pretty face for himself. He doesn't have to achieve any state of spiritual feeling or intellectual understanding. All he has to do is happily accept the cookies, the gift of the kingdom. Anne Lamott said that all prayer is summarized in two statements, three statements, help, thank you, or thanks, and wow. Let's pray.